not at all. Um, I know he was getting a warning, but just because he warned him doesn't mean it was a fair warning. So had he done it, then no, I, I would. I mean, obviously, I would have disagreed as I do now. So there's there's times in the fight. Um, what other man's holding, but you don't call that. So, um, you know, it's just, you know, everybody's human, everybody makes mistakes, people get emotions, people, you know, you, you make a left turn when you should, you didn't look to see if it was, a, it was, if you could make a left turn and you run into a car or something like that. So, everybody's human, it's just, uh, this is the point where everybody has to do some learning. So, yeah, there was a lot of learning to do with Lawrence and, uh, and for other people for that matter. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where I think we prove that planned correctly, you can have three main events in one night. And what a sequence of three events we had. Like what an, what an incredible night of boxing. It's, it's rare that we all sit there as boxing fans and go, we got exactly what we deserved. Long-suffering fans, we always moan that we don't get enough action. And in one night, we, we all fell back in love with the sport. I don't care what side of the fence you're on, what team you're with, everyone won on Saturday night. The promoters won, boxing won, the fans won, even the, the casual fans. I was impressed with how many messages and calls I got from people who don't normally watch boxing going, what an absolutely brilliant Saturday night. And it's, <laughs> these things can all happen, right? And I imagine most of the, the nights were commercially viable as well. So we can do all of this. And the reason we can do it is we're building regional stars on TV. And what I mean by that is Chris Biddham-Smith has got that South Coast on lock for the foreseeable. Lee Wood will have the East Midlands all the way up to Yorkshire on lock for as long as he wants. And then the corridor extends up to Josh Warrington as well. So they've got that region locked down. Mick Conlon, if he chooses to continue, will have Belfast locked down. But as a national audience, we get to consume all of these. So these are shows that will make money on the gate and also make money on the TV and from the exposure that it gives the fighters, which is always a good thing. But today, I think today is one of those times I've got to talk about Chris Biddham-Smith, and it's not the first time I've talked about him. If you follow me from the New Age days, you'll know that might be one of the I mean, there's a number of names I mentioned really early on, and they didn't make sense to anyone because it was us. And I got criticized for it. Like, he's just on here to promote his mates. I remember being criticized for that on Twitter. But I never get the credit for having the foresight to, to see what I saw then and to see it manifest now. And sometimes you got to pause and go, I'm not, I'm not too bad at this predicting thing. So... Just to give you my context, I've known Chris Billum-Smith since 2013. Not personally, but I knew of him because he boxed a good friend of mine, Ricardo Slew, in the ABAs, and he won. And that was the year I genuinely thought Ricardo would win. Like, I'd seen him, and the form Rick was in, monster. Um, but I think Chris managed to out-hustle and out-work him that time, and so that was good experience for Rick, who then went on to win the ABAs in 2015. And then I met Chris after those ABAs, and obviously we all met under the umbrella of Shane McGuigan. So I think they'd brought Chris in to spar George Groves, and they brought John Pilata in and Courtney Bennett in to spar David. And so what happened over time is as I had access to more and more fighters, I worked more and more with the other guys in Shane's stable, 
and Chris started to work more with David. So I got to spend hours and hours and hours with Chris and got to know him reasonably well. Such a lovely guy. <clears throat> Excuse me, such a... I felt this at the time, and I said this back when I was doing those early New Age podcasts, he's, he's the guy you want to see succeed, right? And you can't understand him winning the world title if you don't understand how he got to turn pro. So Chris has always been there or thereabouts. If you look at Chris, Chris has been an ABA semi-finalist or finalist, I think it was about five years in a row. And you look at the people that he eventually lost to at all these various stages. And you name the names. It was, I think there's, there's Jack Massey. There's Shivon Clark. Um, Dion Juma. Uh, who else did he jump in with? Vidal Riley as well. And these are all guys who, are, if you're a boxing fan, are names you're familiar with. So you know he kept in reasonable company, but he'd always come up slightly short. And so you wondered whether he was a guy who would be a lifelong amateur and then go off and do something something else, run a business, be a physio. Because he was talking about that. Chris was always talking about other stuff as well. He's a, he's a, he's a pretty worldly guy. And here's the thing. You looked and like he, you were always gutted for him when he couldn't get that ABA title because you knew he wanted it. He, I mean, like his ABA runs 2012 to 2017, that's rare. I think the only other person who ran it that long would have been someone like an Anthony Fowler, who obviously went from the, from the Tommy Langford days in 2008, 2009, all the way through to Rio. And so you wondered if Chris had turned over too late. Now, how was Chris when he first started out in, in the McGuigan environment? He was solid, but he was an amateur. And he, he kind of earned respect with his fundamental solidity and his will to win. Always in shape. Like, just an example. Chris would get the train from Bournemouth to London to spar David Hay. Then he'd go and work with George. Then get the train back. Come back a couple of days later, do the same again. Let that sink in. Out, out of his own pocket. Now, I don't know if George comp compensated him. I don't think David would have done. I don't know if George compensated him. Maybe he did. But Chris was getting on a train regularly to come and spar. If that doesn't tell you someone's determination, I don't know what else does. So, up until 2017, this is the character of the man. This is the character of the man. And we're going to come on to his amateur trainer, Kev, in a sec. Because obviously he had another fighter on the show. But Chris is that guy. You can sit there, have a beer with him, have a chat with him. He's, he's just a good human being. He's a good guy. Um, solid. Smart. His nickname, The Gentleman, is perfectly appropriate. Like he, and what I love about Chris is he's never changed who he is. He's never changed who he is. And that's important. And what people won't understand is he's always had Bournemouth behind him. He's always had the town behind him. He, he, I mean, this guy would have amateur shows. I think he was at Parkstone. And Parkstone of Bendles, never really sure. But one of them, right? And the roof would go off for Chris. People would come. He could do 120, 140 tickets on his own. 
You don't do that if your town doesn't like you. You don't do that if you're not respected in your area. So credit where credit's due to Chris. And I think a lot of what he's done is a lesson to people. I see a lot of Dan Aziz in Chris Billum Smith. I'm not comparing the two as boxers, but they have pretty similar journeys where Dan was always there or thereabouts. And I jokingly tell him he was 10 sessions with me away from being the greatest light heavyweight in amateur history. I partly mean that, but I always felt that if Dan had been around us, he might have done better, but, you know, the past is the past. But they both have that thing of being counted out so often, but still showing up. And what they both have is that desire to compete. You're not going to beat Dan Aziz unless you're good on the night. You're not going to beat Chris Binham Smith unless you're good on the night. And they will make sure of that. That's a rare quality to have now in our boxers. Our boxers expect to win their first 10 fights. They don't expect to compete in their first 10 fights. I think Chris was different. I always felt on Matchroom, Chris was tolerated. And on Sky, he seems to be backed. And there's a big difference. And boxers learn that. There's a difference between you being tolerated because you fill a spot on a card and you being backed because someone sees something special in you. So that's Chris. A guy you never expect to leave Bournemouth, a guy you expect will always make Bournemouth home, and a guy you expect to always be loved by his city. That's their first world champion. And that's in a season where Bournemouth have stayed up comfortably, so Bournemouth's buzzing at the moment. And think about it, this is years of having lived in the city of, uh, in the shadow of Southampton and Portsmouth with their wild spending, their boom and bust cycles. And here you go. Much like Bournemouth, Chris Bidham Smith has bubbled up at the time when he was ready and he'd been through all of this now I'm going to talk about the fight in a second because this context is important because Chris has had to overcome disappointment after disappointment after disappointment because he'd had to overcome that losing to guys like Massey losing to guys like Siobhan Clark guys that in his head he's like I can beat these guys he's, he's built that competitive resilience which is I'm just going to go into the ring and do the best that I can. And I'm not going to stop doing the best that I can until the fight is over. That's an important skill. Because your consistency can erode your opponent's talent. I had a, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Ed. And it was it, this is the point we talked about years ago. And it was a very important point. What do you do when you hit someone with your hardest shot and they come straight back at you, that's a different kind of mental strength. And as we talk about the fight, you'll understand why that mental strength is important because it was, it was definitive in the fight. So, so let's, go, let's go to an hour before the fight. All the talk was, you know, the, the weight of betting seemed to favor Lawrence's, Lawrence's win by stoppage, right? It was like, yeah, too heavy-handed, too awkward. Don't think Chris Smith has it in him. And my bet was, I'd, bet, I'd backed three stoppages in all the main events. So I thought Okoli by stoppage, I thought Lopez by stoppage, and I thought Lara by stoppage. Yes, yeah, so that bet turned out well. And the reason I thought that was I thought the familiarity would be an advantage for Lawrence in, the term, in terms of he would know where the openings were. In fact, it turned out to be a massive disadvantage to Lawrence because it blinded him to the obvious. And it turned out to be a massive advantage for Chris 
Because as I've said before, the McGuigans have a dossier on everyone they know they're going to fight. Not a physical dossier, but like a metaphorical one. They are prepared. They know what they do well. They know what they do badly. And they, they go after those weaknesses first because they know by attacking the weaknesses, you attack the confidence. And it was always going to be a question of what adjustments can Lawrence make? That was the key question. We knew what Chris would do. And so an hour before, you're like, you know, I hope Chris does justice to his talent. That's how I felt. An hour after the fight, we were all like, wow. <laughs> wow. What have we just seen here? And everyone watching that on TV wanted to be in that stadium at that point. I was watching Kev Thornley in there. I was like, do you know what, Kev, mate? Well played. Like, I remember in 2016 talking to Kevin going, imagine if you guys had a show in Bournemouth, what would that be like? That was a pipe dream. But look, crazy how things can happen for you. So you look at the fight, right? And it's not a, it's not a tactical masterclass. It doesn't need a lot of analysis, right? In very simple terms, Lawrence tried to bully Chris and blast him out of there. He went about it completely the wrong way. Like when you're trying to prove you're better than someone, it's not necessarily about being stronger than them, punching harder than them, or being more aggressive. It's about showing your fundamentals are better than theirs. Therefore, there's not much they can do on top of that. Had Lawrence done that, it would have been a different fight. I'm not saying it would have been a different result, it would have been a different fight. But he went in and he wanted to have everything on his own terms. And be absolutely clear, it was successful, right? It was successful. Now, if you look at the fight as just a balance of a contest, the gap wasn't wide. What widens the gap, if we're being honest, is, will be the point deductions and the knockdowns. And people go, oh, yeah, but there were knockdowns. A couple of them um, you'd call soft knockdowns. The one in the, I think it was the third round, the one in the third round is comfortably a knockdown. The others... There's Lawrence falling, and as he's falling, he gets hit, and you call that a knockdown, that feels soft. The other one was just Lawrence falling. And I think by that point, the referee had had enough. Um, the referee was just like, this is a terrible fight to officiate. I just, yeah, this isn't fun for me. And he just started punishing Lawrence. You know, we'll come on to that in a sec. So with Chris Billum-Smith, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a guy that's not going backwards, right? He's not going backwards. So you've got, you've got two options against a guy like that. You hit him before he moves forward. Or you move forward and crash into him. With my coaching head on, I'm not bothered which one you use as long as it works. The problem was, Lawrence crashing into Chris wasn't working because Chris was prepared for that. Chris knows Lawrence. Lawrence's advantage in every one of his fights was it was a massive shock to the opponent to deal with Lawrence. His, his size, his kind of awkward dimensions, his strength, it was hard to deal with Lawrence physically. And so most of his opponents spent so long computing ways to actually deal with that reality that they weren't really concentrating on what they should be doing in the ring. Contrasta with Chris who was used to that. And then he's had a whole camp to prepare for that and to know what he's going to do. How are you going to give the ref the impression that Lawrence is holding? All of these things, the small details that make Shane a good trainer, these have all been factored in. 
But the key thing, the thing that sort of set the, set the tone for the downfall, because up until the third round, it was like a nip and tuck fight, and you wondered whether this would just be about who had the, the better engine. But if you've watched Lawrence over the years, he has a, he has a habit of pulling out to his right-hand side, but he pulls in a, like, almost in like a, like in a horizontal plane. He doesn't create distance before he moves out to the side, like the old-timers do. So the old-timers will normally move their head, but there's normally some protection behind it, which means that you can't just throw that left hook as a counter. And normally your hand's a little bit higher, so you'd catch it anyway. Lawrence has a tendency to sort of jab, pull his head to the right so he can have a look. And that's all well and good against someone who hasn't seen that before. But when someone's seen it before and the trainer of your opponent has seen it hundreds of times and has probably been frustrated by it, he just puts a plan in place and says, okay, Chris, he's going to do that. All you have to do when he throws his jab, just count it with a bit of sweeping left hook. It may not get him the first time, it may not get him the second time, but it's going to get him. And in the third round, it did. Was Lawrence a bit off balance? Yes. But was it a good shot? Absolutely. Changed the whole complexion of that fight. So think why that knockdown was important, right? That first time in Lawrence's professional career, he's been down. First time he's looked like he was in trouble, despite the ungainly style. And it was a thing that no one expected Chris Biddham-Smith to do. Nobody expected that. And you could hear like that kind of, oh, wow. And so at that point there, the fight changes for any number of reasons. One, the crowd suddenly believed. So it went from being like a sympathetic, go on, Chris, go on, Chris, to he's got him, right? And when the energy of that crowd changed, it was hard for Lawrence to arrest the tide because you've been knocked down and all you can hear is the crowd going, yeah, get him. And you've never been in that position as a pro. And at that point, you realize you're in a corner of people who don't know you. And you saw that in the corner afterwards. Sugar Hill doesn't know Lawrence like that. Lawrence might have been better off having someone like an Umar Sadiq in the corner. I think that would have made more sense to have someone like an Umar or Dan Aziz in the corner where they know his character. So they would have known the message to get across to him. But that was after that. Lawrence was catching up and you could see that his pride was hurt and you could see he was trying to get that back and he'd try and surge but Chris was prepared for all of this because they know each other and the second thing is no matter how hard Lawrence hit Chris was used to it psychologically he was used to it there was no fear in there and all Chris had to keep telling himself was stick to the plan stick to the plan I couldn't tell you what Lawrence's plan was and there'll be people listening going, well, what would you have done, Terry? What, what should Lawrence have done in that fight? And I've said it before. Right? With someone like Chris Billum-Smith, you haven't got to take a lot of time because he's never going to give you a different guard and a different setup to what he does. He's not. So if he's going to give you that, you may as well blast through it. See if you can blast through it because he's not a guy that's going to step back and counter. He's not. Um, he'll cover up, come back with something. So if you hit him four times, at least two of those shots have to get through. No, I'd have also recommended a lot more body work and body work with authority. Really, you know, all that sort of stuff that I think just boxing 101, being a six foot six guy with an incredible wingspan, nothing too complicated. 
But it seemed to be a fight that Chris fought with his head and Lawrence fought with his heart. And that's always a dangerous combination because the head will always win, especially when both men have the heart of a lion. And so we need to talk about the holding. We've talked about the holding before. I just, I just think in this situation, all the chickens came home to roost. I don't think that's Lawrence's worst holding performance. I think, like I said earlier, when you've got a guy in Billum Smith that doesn't go backwards and a guy in Lawrence who comes forwards aggressively, you're going to have clashes and the arms have to go somewhere. So it's always going to give an impression that someone's holding. And you can see Chris fighting to, to free his hands to give the referee that, that mental picture of, look, I'm trying to get my hands free to fight. He's not. Which doesn't necessarily mean holding. And I think there were a couple of times where the ref was trigger happy on the holding. That's not to say the holding wasn't there, but it wasn't, was it, a three, was it two or three points deduction? I can't even remember now. But it only warranted a point deduction on that. But that was always going to be the fight. It was always going to be messy and gnarly. And there are fans going, it's about time someone policed that. And you're 100% right. If you believe that we should be policing, holding ruthlessly, you're 100% right. But we don't. We don't. When Vlad was at his best, jab, jab, hold. Jab, jab, hold. That's what David Hay was complaining about. No one batted an eyelid. Right? You see Joshua doing it a lot more now. Referees give him a squeeze. I'll, if Look, I stand on this point. If this is how refs are going to enforce holding from now on, good. But if this is just because it was Lawrence, then that's wrong. Um, the McGuigan corner screaming at the ref, I'm not against that. Take any advantage you can as a trainer to win. And if you can get into the ref's head, get into the ref's head. I have no issue with that. And they know Lawrence well enough to know when to call for those moments. So fair play to him. That's a, that's a well-oiled machine. It was up to Sugar Hill to counter that. I don't think he did. So that's what I felt about the holding. But this comes down to something I tweeted on Saturday night where I asked a simple question and I said, is Sugar Hill this magician that people say he is? And it seems that you get this Tyson Fury rub. And I'm going to word this carefully because I don't want to say this to offend anyone. Like I, I, believe, I believe every name I mentioned now is a good coach. This isn't about whether they're good coaches or not. It's about whether working with Fury can skew your perception. Because you've got to remember, Tyson Fury is a lifelong boxer. He's boxed since he was, according to him, since before he was born. Fury's boxed a long time. He's boxed at a high level for a long time. He's been special for a long time. Nearly 20 years, he's been seen as special. So what are you really adding to a kid who is special, other than discipline, focus, and some tactics? So I look at it from that perspective, and I say, working with Fury elevated Peter Fury to legendary status. And that's why people respect Peter Fury's views because they go, look at what he did with Tyson Fury. But that's it, right? That's it. No one else is. Matt Yaskin was there. Matt Yaskin didn't turn out to be Fury. Huey hasn't turned out to be Fury. There's only one Tyson Fury. So then Fury then steps away from that situation, goes to Ben Davison, has the fight he has with Wilder, 
we call Ben Davidson the best coach. He gets on BT Sport. He builds a whole career of being Tyson Fury's trainer. Maybe gave Fury's most conservative and negative performance. Fury leaves him. Ben hasn't really hit those heights since. I know we'll talk about Lara versus Wood, but that's not on the same level as what Fury was doing with Wilder. In fact. And then Fury goes to Sugar Hill. At this point, Fury, being the boxing historian he is, understands he hasn't got the legs he had in 2015. So he's going to have to stand a bit more. But key to doing that is being more proactive with the punches he throws and using his length a lot more. I don't think that's like boxing. That's not boxing alchemy to say, well, Fury, you're, you're quite a big guy. You're getting older. You're going to have to be in the middle of the ring a lot more. Best way to do that is to throw some big bombs at people. See what happens. I don't particularly think that's rocket science. I think Fury probably figured that out on his own. But based on that, Sugar Hill Stewart went from a guy that worked with Charles Martin to the guy every British boxer wants to be with. And if you look at all the non-Fury projects, they're up in the air. And once again, I am not saying Peter Fury's a bad trainer. I am not saying Sugar Hill's a bad trainer. I'm not saying Ben Davidson's a bad trainer. What I'm saying is you can't look at their reputations through the Tyson Fury lens. It's dangerous to do so. Because nobody else walking into their gym is Tyson Fury. I think Peter's a good trainer. I think Peter's a good boxing brain. I think he's a, a good boxing man, full stop. I've said it numerous times about Ben Davidson. I think Ben Davidson is on an upward trajectory. Where that ends up, I have no idea. Will he be another Adam Booth? Don't know. Will he be another Shane McGuigan? Don't know. Will he be his own, his own identity? I don't know. But he's on an upward trajectory. Because he's a young man who's still learning his trade. And he gets to learn with some pretty good athletes. But we're going to see what Ben can do with guys like Chris Congo, Jamie Shakiva. I think they've got Jesse Brandon as well. Um, Alois Jr. We'll see now. Now he's got his projects. We're going to see how those guys operate. Much like Shane. Because, you know, Shane had George. And George had been elsewhere. David had been elsewhere. Um, you know, so we were like, we've got to judge this guy and Josh Taylor. And we did. And then we're like, well, but Josh is Josh and Josh was in the GB system. Josh is an Olympian. You know, anyone could have done that with Josh was kind of the argument. We'll begin to realize not anyone can do it with Josh. But the one we always knew would be the Shane's test would have been Billum Smith. Because there wasn't a lot to fix, but the things he needed to fix were key. And he was able to do that. And I think, and having spoken to Shane before, Shane had no idea what Chris Billum Smith would do, what level he'd reach. He didn't know, but Shane liked him and liked what he was about. And you've seen the results. And it's worth adding, Lawrence was probably the strongest cruiserweight champion, so Chris could have been in with anyone else, and that version of Chris Billum Smith would have probably won. So, yeah, you, you, this is what I mean. Be very, very careful the lens through which you view trainers. Try and view trainers through the lens of the guy who was least talented and least competent and see what value they added to him. That's how I look at it. And I know someone will say to me, so does that mean you rate Ben Davidson because of what he did with Lee Wood? You've got to remember, Lee Wood was an international as an amateur. Lee Wood's a good fighter. Lee Wood is from the same kind of period and level as like a Luke Campbell. So this idea that Lee Wood was some 
small hall clogger is wrong. Lee Wood was pretty good. So that's not a fair comparison. Maybe he was poorly trained, mistrained, a bit like Maxi Hughes, I guess. But he was good. And you're beginning to see that now. But just to anchor that point, stop looking at trainers through the lens of their best projects. Instead, look at them through the, their worst projects and see what they added. And when you start to do that, a lot of these trainers' reputations start to dissolve. So we get to the end of a compelling fight, and I think one judge had it 112-112 after all the deductions, which meant he had Lawrence winning eight rounds to four. No idea how on earth you score a fight that way, but okay. The other scorecards seem to be broadly there. Um, I think it shows that without the deductions, it was a close fight, uh, which you'd expect between two guys who know each other. I love the fact that when Lawrence did his interview and the crowd booed, within 15 seconds he had them cheering. Because they realized that, oh man, these guys had to fight each other. They've provided for their families. And Lawrence has been magnanimous. He's accepted the better man won. And he's now got his head on the rematch. When boxing does that, boxing's incredible, isn't it? Nice and simple. No controversy needed. Handshake. Real, real elegant behavior. And everything Lawrence said subsequent to that has held true. Um, I like his... Brutal honesty, brutal honesty, I shouldn't say that. It's like his, his ability to be aware that Sugar Hill was telling him to do stuff he didn't do. And that happens, you know. <laughs> this is why I tell people, stop changing trainers. It will take you a year, year and a half to learn another trainer. That's a year, year and a half of your career. What's the point? I genuinely think you're better off Stick it to the same trainer your whole career, no matter how mediocre you think they are, than switching trainers. It's, it's too much of a lottery, it's too much to ask, and you're essentially mortgaging the best years of your career. When David Hay left Adam Booth, what changed? Not much. When David Hay left Shane, what changed? Not much. I mean, same with George, not much. You, you can't create a new fight, so you can kind of eliminate some bad habits, but the fighter is the fighter beyond a certain point. And people need to accept that. And so this all takes us to the rematch that's probably going to happen. Um, I think you, you've got to do it again in Bournemouth, right? But how soon do you have the rematch? If I'm Lawrence, I want more time. I, I, I'm looking tail end of the year at the earliest. Um, I think both men need to heal physically and emotionally from that. I think like when you fight someone that you've been in close proximity to for a while and you like and you get along with it's quite hard emotionally because you've got to rebuild those bonds because stuff was said I'm not saying it was disrespectful but you've had to say stuff in the build up to the fight that ideally you'd rather not have said and so there's a rebuilding process there because I'd like to feel those two will still be okay with each other because they're both two really good human beings but when the rematch happens if you ask me I, I expect Lawrence will be a bit more respectful of who and what Chris is I'd ideally have loved Chris to have gone after Jack Massey after this, but the rematch clause is there, cool. You know, let's, let's keep this belt circulating, though. And one of the things I want to add in closing to this, we need to look back on that Isaac Chamberlain-Chris Billum-Smith fight now and really give Isaac credit. Because Isaac wasn't match fit for that fight at all. 
He wasn't. He hadn't built up any momentum or any form where you could look at him and go, yeah, he could do a solid 12 rounds at the pace he needs to. He wasn't there yet. And he still was able to dog it out with Chris. And we didn't think Chris was that good back then. We didn't understand the journey. We didn't understand what Chris was capable of. And Isaac showed. I think of all the people Chris has fought, Isaac might be the only person who will match him for will and desire and that thing that says, I'm still going to be here. And so I find that really interesting that you can now compare those dynamics. And what it's done is it's brought Lawrence into the pack a bit more, where before we thought Lawrence was miles ahead of everyone. It's brought him into the pack. And there's a guy sat at home, Richard Riakpour, going, I think I beat all of these. But this is his time to strike. This is the time for Richard to now start saying, give me the winner. But this is really kind of, it's made the cruiserweight division interesting. Now, the last 12 months, and yes, we give Ben Shalom and Sky a kicking for being a bit haphazard in how they seem to be promoting. And it is haphazard because we still don't know what the story is. But now think about it. In the last 12 months, we've had Chamberlain versus Billum Smith. We've had Ben Smith versus Akoli. We've had Jack Massey come into the fold. We're tr they're trying to push Vidal Riley up as quick as they can. And we're now getting to the point where it's bubbling. Sky have got Jordan Thompson and Siobhan Clark. It's bubbling nicely now. This is a division to watch. If they were smart, they would just keep making fights in this division because we like it. These names are familiar to us now. We know the fights are good. Just make more of these fights. That's how Sky can stay ahead of everyone else, just making fights like this. Shooting fish in the barrel. If they drop the ball on the cruiserweight division, Jesus, what's the world coming to? Although I would add one thing. If you're the money man at Sky, you're looking at Boxer and you're saying, was it our money or your money that went into signing Okoli? Because why did we need a Coley if the guy we already had here won the world title? Why did we need him? Now, the answer is you need him because you need critical mass in a division. And now they've got that critical mass. There are still fights we want to see. We want to see this rematch. And then the winner of the rematch can fight Richard React, Paul the loser fights Isaac, and then we kind of just keep bubbling this through. But they've got to commit to that every quarter there's a big cruiserweight fight and people will keep watching Sky. But what an absolutely great moment for us. I think that's, that's a moment, as a British boxing fan, we can point to any country in the world and say, you guys can't do that. Outside of your main commercial centers, you can't deliver that. Worth just touching on a couple of other things on that Bournemouth card. Really good card, by the way. Um, you know, it looks like South Coast boxing might become a thing. And what I hope is it inspires a lot of the youngsters now, because a lot of times... You know, if you're in Southampton, Portsmouth, wherever, you don't feel connected to the boxing world. So hopefully this is an opportunity to, to bridge that gap. And hopefully we can get some more talent through because I'll always bang the drum for more talent. But I wanted to talk about Joe Pigford versus Sam Eggington. Now you got, I call this Boxing 101. You can't give Joe Pigford the fights he's had on Sky, right? And they've been... They've been as close to knockovers as possible. I'm not, I'm not knocking Al Siesta here for matchmaking. I think the Eggington fight makes sense. If you're going to get behind someone like Joe Pigford, why not have him against Eggington? Let's see if 
if the power that Pigfoot has can um, de defuse, you know, the engine that is Sam Eggington. The reality was Sam Eggington kind of ran through him, as Sam Eggington does. Sam Eggington is that guy that you have to be on your game to beat him because, like Billum Smith, he does what he does every round. And if you can't cope with that in round three, you're not going to cope with it in round nine. And as it found out, so you can't be letting guys like Pigford get to whatever it was, 20 and 0, and be talking about all of these knockouts. Because was he learning in those fights? It didn't look that way. He didn't like, like, it wasn't a solid plan. And that, that's a lesson for most boxers. You know, being undefeated is cool if you're beating the right people. And Eggington was a fight too soon for Joe Pickford. But sometimes there are good losses to take, and this might have been a good loss for him to take. Now we'll see if the character's there for him to build. But all of these guys, you guys keep touting, oh, you've got to see this prospect, he's 15 and 0. We're now finding out that a lot of these records are hollow. And you've got to contrast that with, with Lee Cutler, you know, on the subject of Kev Thornley and his guys. You've got to contrast that with Lee Cutler. So they've had Cutler on Sky a few times, right? And this guy kind of got behind him knowing that, you know, the Bill and Smith thing would take off. So Lee Cutler's done that and he's boxed in Bournemouth as well. And I think that was the edge over Stanley Stannard. Stannard's a good fight to have, by the way. That was a good fight between people I'd class as peers. And I think the difference in that fight from what I could see was Lee Cutler wasn't doing too much, wasn't doing a lot on social media, just seemed to have it all under control. Stanley Stannard was kind of, he was enjoying it a bit too much. And I don't say that negatively. It's like, you're on Sky Sports. You know, you've, you've got to the place you wanted to get to. And, you know, but he was still trying to be Stanley Stannard, who was pre-Sky Sports. So he was talking tickets, all this, that, and the third. And maybe some of that energy that should have been in the fight went into what happened in fight week. And that's understandable because you don't know when you're going to be there again. I think that's the difference. I think, let, let, let's, let, just a thought exercise here. If instead of Bournemouth, Sky had said we're going to build in Leicester, they'd have put Stannard, um, Blocko, Bethel, um, the guy that fought Ryan Amos as well, right? You're going to have all of those guys on there, and they're going to do their reps like you did in the Leon Woodstock days on BT. They're all going to do their reps. And remember there was a kid, Sam Bowen, we never saw him after that, but those guys were getting reps. Unfortunately, Stannard wasn't really an active part of that. But if the roles had been reversed and it had been in Leicester and Stanley Stannard was more comfortable, he might have won that fight. But they're, they're good fights to make because both men will learn from that. I think Stanley Stannard will come back and should come back because he's talented. And now Lee Cutler gets to show what he can do. So congratulations to him. So I thought overall good card. I think Al Siesta matched that. Um, he definitely made sure we knew he was there on social media. Um, thought it was a well-matched card. If that's, a, if that's what Al Siesta's bringing to Sky, more of that, please. You know, the, the jeopardy involved in that, that's what boxing's about. So, so absolute credit to him for that. But I'm going to call half-time now because it's, it's Monday bank holiday as I'm recording this and you know, let me go and enjoy some sunshine, man. It's boiling in here. So I'm, I'm finding it hard to record for any length of time because I am sweltering. And if I open the window, you're going to get the outside noise and people complain, oh, the audio is terrible, man. So I'm going to sign out here and then I'm going to do the other cards later, if that makes sense.
So bear with me, but yeah, it's boiling in here. Take care, guys. <laughs>